0: Let's Get Real. And this morning, I'd like us to get real about Reformation or about Reformation. So I invite you, and I'll explain why we're reading this text in a moment, but I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, written by King David. One of the more familiar and more beloved psalms in this Psalter, in fact. Well, I would listen to God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On October 31st, 1517, 504 years ago today, a bold and stout Augustinian monk called Martin Luther went into the city of Wittenberg and up the stairs of All Saints Church and nailed a piece of paper on the door. And on this piece of paper, there were 95 what they called theses or arguments about what Luther felt were abuses going on in the Roman Catholic Church of that time. Luther's intention was not to divide the church He did not want to split the church asunder, but rather his intention was to reform the deformities of the church by seeing it informed by the true gospel of grace and the truth of Scripture. And indeed, centering in upon the Scriptures alone as that which is authority for faith has authority for faith and life, and centering in upon the true gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone, Martin Luther and those after him sparked a reformation not only of the church in the day, but also and importantly of the culture in the day. And beloved, my intention here in mentioning this as we begin is not to rehearse the history of the Protestant Reformation and some of the sad things that may have happened and many of the good things that may have happened, but rather my intention here on Halloween Sunday or much better, Reformation Day Sunday, is to remind us that we, in our tradition, the Christian Reformed Church Here in the Reformed tradition, one of the things that we must always be on about and cognizant of is our duty to continue to reform not only the church, but to work patiently as a patient ferment in the world to reform the culture around us as well by centering in upon the truth of God's word and the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. There is one area in particular that I believe we as a church need to speak into our own churches and especially into our culture today with a great deal of clarity, winsomeness and boldness. In fact, I believe that in this 21st century, if we as a church are going to be a city on the hill, a light to the nations, a balm to the broken, we are going to have to speak with clarity on one topic in particular, this one. What does it mean to be human? Over the last 200 years, our culture here in the West has moved further and further away in its metaphysical foundations and the way it thinks about what it means to be human, further and further away from the truth of God's Word. Consequently, we move further and further into distortions in our living and in our thinking about what it means to be human. And one of the areas where I believe we need to seek the good of the church and the good of our culture, therefore, is indeed by looking at this question and speaking boldly about what it means to be human. Thus, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is considered uh, by scholars to be Genesis 1 and 2 set to music. And that's exactly what it is with a particular emphasis on what we might call theological anthropology, or in other words, what it means to be human according to Scripture. And this is what I'd like to look at you with you this morning, but I want to do it in a particular way. I would like to suggest three ways that I believe that we can speak to our culture today in this 21st century. Three words or messages about what it means to be human, that are grace-filled and liberating, that we can, and by God's grace, will speak into our culture today. And just one little caveat as we jump into this, in the spirit of the Reformation, which wanted to raise the bar on the rigor with which we looked at Scripture, at the same time as the rigor with which we were looking at culture and doing some cultural analysis so that our Christian faith can have a bearing on culture. Um, With that same sort of rigor, I am going to attempt to speak this morning, which means that it might be a little more challenging than usual in some ways. So I bid your indulgence this morning as I try to reach for a top drawer. Not your indulgences. Don't get worried. Just your indulgence this morning as we Now, those of you who aren't laughing, that was supposed to be funny because you know something about the Reformation, right, indulgences. In any event, I bid your indulgence this morning. We're going to try and reach a little higher. But beloved, here are three words that I believe we can speak to our culture today. First, I believe that we can say, 21st century person, please know and please believe that your identity as a human being is not something that you need to create by yourself or discover by looking into yourself. Your identity instead is something that is given. About 150 years ago, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche observed the societal death of God, which is to say that God is dead, not necessarily because he doesn't exist, but because we as a society had killed him. And the result of this achievement said Nietzsche, would naturally in time be the collapse of agreed-upon beliefs, not least of all, of course, in terms of what it means to be human. Because, and follow his logic here, if there is no creator God above, then there's no intentional design in the creation. If there's no design in the creation, then we human ourselves are not designed. And if we human beings are not fundamentally designed then we could each be whatever we want to be. And if, final train of thought, we can each be whatever we want to be, soon the requirement will be upon us to decide for ourselves, to make the decision, to choose just who it is that we are. We will be placed in the position of needing, in essence, to become our own designers to create our own identities. Not to so much discover who we are, but rather to design who we are. Two factors in recent history have made this idea that we can probably and must design ourselves, two factors have made this idea more plausible than ever. The technological revolution, on the one hand, and what the psychologist Philip Reif calls the therapeutic revolution, or the triumph of the therapeutic on the other. And just think about these two revolutions with me for a moment. Watersheds in recent history. First, the technological revolution, what with its many inventions and apparent progress by the amazing engineering and innovative techniques of humans, the technological revolution has appeared to put us human beings in the driver's seat as powerful creators right progress seems inevitable stunning environmental and self-transformation seems within our reach and no wonder it does but because consider what we have achieved traveling to the moon done it diving into the depths of the ocean done it sending motorized vehicles off into the far reaches of the galaxies and sending back pictures done it cloning sheep Cloning sheep and other animals, and maybe even secretly human beings, from mere DNA strands. Done that. Advances in anti-aging and dreams of transhumanist achievements. Working on it. Preventing pregnancy with a great deal of efficiency by merely popping a pill. Done it. The stunting of the onset of puberty, one of the previously most wild and powerful and disruptive experiences a human being could have, and to do this by the popping of some pills called puberty blockers. We're doing that. And now today, the medical transformation of biological men or women into the appearance of the opposite sex. Doing it. The point is, our technological advances have been positively stunning. Superhuman even. Miraculous. And so, the impl- implicit message of the technological revolution upon the human consciousness today is this. Don't ask so much who you are, a human being, according to your biology and natural history, and seek to discover that, but rather ask who you want to be and use technology to help you achieve that to be sure, not only has the death of God and culture at large suggested that we must create our own identities, but technology has given us the sense that we can and probably should create our own identities, notwithstanding the apparent givens of our nature or our history, because we can change all that. But then secondly, not only the technological revolution, but the therapeutic revolution. It too has given us this sense that we can create ourselves and actually that probably we must. And let me just say this caveat here. With both the technological revolution and the therapeutic revolution, I am not saying that there are not wonderful, great, good things that have come about because of these, but I'm focusing on a different aspect. But it too has given us the sense that we can and probably must create ourselves. But what is the therapeutic revolution? Let me put it this way, as Philip Reeve does in one of his books. In a nutshell, he says, consider it historically, comparing it to other eras, going back 2,500 years to the time of Aristotle, about that. If Aristotle said that to be human was to be a political animal, and therefore find your identity by being engaged outwardly in the activities of the city... And if the man in the Middle Ages said that to be human was to be a religious animal and therefore find your identity in being engaged again outwardly in the activities of the church and the monastery, and if the woman of the Enlightenment then said that to be a human was to be an economic animal and therefore find your identity by being engaged outwardly in making money and property acquisition and material prosperity... Then, in contrast to these former ways of thinking about what it means to be human, the 21st century person in the West says that to be human is predominantly to be not a political animal or a religious animal or an economic animal, but to be a psychological animal. And therefore, to find your identity by engaging inwardly in how you feel. Digging down into your psyche, learning what resides there, and then being authentic to that true self buried deep down inside. What is our modern motto today? Be true to yourself. And what's more, we add to this and say to fail to be true to yourself, meaning oftentimes your inner subjective feelings, is to fail to be truly human and live your true life. You have failed to live the authentic existence. So find out what's in there and create your identity based on that, based on how you feel, based on your deepest desires. Beloved, there is such pressure today to create our own identities. And with the pressure, this feeling that we can do it, and maybe that we must do it. And though it is spun as liberating, it's actually enslaving. It's oppressive. Because the pressure, consider the pressure... If we have to create an identity for ourselves, then what if we fail? What if we're still a nobody? What if nobody likes us? What if we make the wrong choice? What if our feelings change through time? Then does our foundational identity also change with it? Where are we rooted? Where do we find our place in this world? This needs reforming. We in the church have good, gracious, and liberating news. David begins his psalm of reflection, what it means to be human, with the words, O Lord, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord. The basic presupposition of David's entire psalm is that there is a creator God above who in his infinite wisdom created human beings just as he did. And he gave us, first and foremost, he gave us a unique identity as image bearers of God, as men and women, as those set above the animals to rule them in loving care, as those who are to tend the garden as prophets, priests, and princes, as children and families, as families who are parts of tribes and nations, as tribes and nations who are allotted specific pieces of earth to dwell within at certain historical times. All these things were given to us before we were born or at our birth, and they were designed in the providence of God, To give us a stable sense of identity, of rootedness, of face, of place. So, who are you, modern man or woman, modern teen? According to Scripture, you are an image-bearer of God most fundamentally, a caretaker of creation then as well. Then, in addition to all these things, you are. You have a history that God has given you. It may not be the best history, it may be a difficult one, but it nonetheless can be designed to situate you in this world and give you a sense of place. Son of so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so, grandchild, and so on and so forth. You are someone, in other words, who has been given a very rich identity, roots, meaning. Your most fundamental identity is rooted in something that cannot be taken away, an identity in God Himself. What a potential first word to speak to our world. It's a liberating word. It's a gracious word. You need not try to create yourself, your own identity, because God has already given you one. Here's a second word. 21st century person, I believe we could say, please know and believe that not only your identity, but your value Your dignity as a human being is not something that you yourself need to prove or establish. It too is something that is given as a gift, as divine right. Your dignity itself, your inherent value is a gift of God. Saints, this point I acknowledge is very similar to the last one and they're interlinked in all sorts of ways. But I believe it needs to be articulated on its own because it's so incredibly important for us today. There is a very strong sense, not only of people in our world, but I believe of us, too, in the church, In most of us, and probably the younger uh, we are, the harder this can be, but there is a very strong sense that we need to prove our value, prove that we're special, maybe by being good at something or at least better than others, maybe by making a lot of money, maybe by getting lots of degrees or good grades. Maybe by being prettier or more handsome, stronger or faster than others, or maybe just by being the person that everybody likes. But the key thing to note is that for a variety of reasons today, there is a strong sense in us that our value or worth as a human being will be connected to something about ourselves that will be recognized by others, by society as valuable or praiseworthy. It is, to mimic some reformational language, please, it is a meritorious value, if you will. And if you do not think this is a problem for you, by the way, that you're not susceptible to this, then I just invite you to think about some things that are very important to you and your sense of value, and imagine if those things were taken away. What would happen to you if you lost a certain relationship or your good looks or your intelligence or your ability to earn the wages you do? Would you immediately fall into a depression? It might be a good indication that you have begun to find your value and dignity in a quality or condition or a strength of your life, something that you actually believe at the end of the day gives you merit. It found your value. The truth is, is, most of us do do this. It's very hard not to today. But here's the problem with this what happens when you lose that thing that makes you special, that you think gives you value? that makes you worthy of the air you breathe. You become a nobody. You lose your value. This will not bode well for you as an individual, and it will not bode well for us, this view of being human and finding our value as a society. In fact, it should be noticed that with the eclipse of God in our society, the so-called death of God, That is, with the feeling or belief that we are alone in a vast universe, this idea of human dignity and value is attached, that it's attached to outward qualities or merits or strengths that we possess, is already taking root. It's already taking root at a societal level and it's having deadly consequences. I point your attention to two cultural phenomena today that are an index of our problem doctor-assisted suicide or MAID, medical assistance in dying, and the staggering number of babies being aborted because they have Down syndrome. What do these two realities point to? That life is hard? Well, sure, but life has always been hard. Rather, they point to the growing sense that human life only has value if it is pain-free or has certain value-laden properties like strength, and intelligence, and utility. And when it doesn't, life somehow becomes not worth living. Mine as well end it, for the weak in the womb, or for the woe-begone in the hospice. Belgian citizens today, and this may be true of Canada, I'm not sure where Canada is at on this, but in Belgium today, you can end your life if you are feeling depressed or distressed. Because, again, with the therapeutic revolution, we feel that the only life worth living is the one where we can be happy. How we feel is all important. I think the point to be drawn from this is that the ground of dignity has shifted in our society, and there are certain signs of it that we're seeing in society at large. And it places us on a suicidal path. The United States Constitution states That we hold these things to be self-evident and then goes on to describe the inherent dignity of men and women whether weak or strong rich or poor healthy or sick but in a world where we've jettisoned god this centerpiece of our civilization cannot hold we've begun to stand on thin air the intrinsic dignity of human beings is no longer a foregone conclusion my saying i have dignity doesn't make it so We have no metaphysical bedrock for it. We assume it, but I think that we're standing on quicksand. We can even get this from our psalm, how we get to this place. Because look at David. Even David, who does believe in God, looks up one night at the center of our psalm into a star-studded sky, and he's thunderstruck by a realization. We human beings are tinier than ants, more insignificant than dust, and maybe even more insignificant than that. Look at the glory of the moon. Look at the glory of the stars. Look at their magnitude and radiance and numbers. And then do the comparative. Look at yourself. Look at us. We are so small, so pathetic, so unruly, so comical, actually. And all of it makes David declare, "'What is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him?' and the son of man, literally, the son of Adam, the son of Adam, that you care for him. Beloved, to the unaided eye, to the eye looking out upon this world without being informed by the special revelation of God about what it means to be human, not only might we conclude that we are small, pathetic, ludicrous creatures, if you compare us to the iridescent beauty of the heavens above, but you might also conclude that we're so morally corrupt as to only be worthy of being wiped off the face of this earth because there is an intimation here in our text that we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who fell, who plummeted us into sin, who ruined, got ruined and subsequently, if you looked at what happened after that and continues to happen today, made a royal mess of the world. Some in our world today still believe that the biggest problem in the world today is human beings, and if we could only exterminate the beasts that we are, the environment would be saved, the animals wouldn't go extinct, and all the like of that. We have moved very far away from the idea that even despite our sin and folly as human beings, we have an inalienable, God-given dignity that cannot be taken away the staggering truth of Scripture is that we do have this inalienable dignity. It's not because of our class or our gender or our nationality or because I say so. It's not because of our inherent giftings or talents or money or family history or esteemed positions in society or power over others or great reputations or because we're celebrities or anything like that. Our dignity according to Scripture as human beings Comes from one thing and one thing alone at the end of the day. No matter how weak or sinful or shameful we are, it comes from being the objects of God's love, His special creation. That you are mindful of Him, says David, that you care for Him. God thinks of us. Imagine that. God cares for us. Who would have thunk it? It's a marvel. And I believe this is an urgent word our world needs to hear today, and many of us need to hear today. God thinks about you. And in fact, Scripture says that before the first star was born, God thought of your existence. And God cares about you. And in fact, He cares enough about you that He was willing to come to this earth and die as we learn in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is where dignity lies today in our creation by God and our redemption by God and it is inalienable because it all comes from God I remember a conversation I had with a young lady when I was about 19 years old I was working at the restaurant called Earl's in downtown Vancouver and we were in the staff room during a break and she had just had an abortion and for some reason or another was telling me about this. And I just listened to her story, and she told me during the course of our conversation that she didn't believe in God, she didn't believe in a supreme being above or anything like that. And I said to her, I don't remember her name, said to her, you know, Jana, or whatever her name was, I said, "Um, you may not believe, that there is a God above, but I want you to know something. I believe that you are precious to God, that He created you for a relationship with Himself, and that He's absolutely crazy about you, crazy enough to die. And at that point, tears started rolling down her eyes because she'd never heard anything like that before. A God who could love me who wants a personal relationship with me, and who would go so far as to die for me, maybe she could believe in that, this forgiving and loving God. Oh, what a message of hope, a gracious and liberating word we have not only for the identity of people today, but also for their dignity. Let me just say one third and final thing that we can say to the world, and I will try to be brief. I believe that we can say, 21st century person, please know and please believe that not only your identity as a human being and not only your value as a human being is given by God, but your purpose and glory in life is also given by God. And you know what that purpose and glory is? It is not, as we may put it, primarily self-expression, but it is God-expression. Or as we might put it a little more pointedly, it's not so much self-revelation as it is God revelation, to reveal the glory of God in the world. The last many years, as I said earlier, have seen unbelievable technological changes, and perhaps none that is more momentous and transformative than the invention of the Internet, the World Wide Web, and with it, a flood of social media platforms. And one of the intriguing um, aspects of this, friends, of many of these social media platforms is that, if you think about it, they're inviting us to live a life that is profoundly self-expressive and self-revealing in an online sort of way, a disembodied sort of way, right? We post pictures from our lives, we post our vacations. we post what we ate for dinner, we post where we are, We post whom we're with. We post about a nice tree that we see. We post about cute kittens that we come across. We post a picture and description of um, who we're with at that time. We post about what we like and don't like, what we like to wear and not wear. All sorts of stuff all over the map. We're unbelievably self-expressive and self-revealing today. And the online reality calls us into that. And not all of this is bad, and please do not hear me saying that. I am describing, not judging However, one of the things where we do perhaps need to put our critical faculty to work is by observing that after running this experiment in social media platforms for the last while and seeing new generations of teens and tweens getting into it, often without any constraints being laid on them by busy parents, social scientists are beginning to recognize that it's having a negative impact on overall mental health and well-being. Some of this is likely related to an increasingly disembodied existence. Some of this is likely related to the need to be known, but the niggling feeling that your online existence isn't actually getting you truly known. Some of this may be related to a failure to receive the sorts of responses and likes to postings that one would like, and then experiencing an assault on your sense of dignity and identity. But surely a great deal of this negativity stems from the fact that there is pressure to reveal one's life, to curate one's life as wonderful, as perfect, as always happy, as always joyous, and therefore the internal experience of feeling a disconnect between my life as revealed or presented out here to the world and the life as I'm actually living it here. And then as we look at other people's posts, that sense is redoubled that they have a perfect life, look at the vacation, look at the wonderful dinner with their spouses, look at the wonderful things that their kids are doing, which doesn't match our life. And so no no wonder the depression and the exhaustion, all of this pressure to express ourselves, to reveal ourselves on the outside, is actually in some ways stealing our lives away. And so, while this could be nuanced in many different ways, what a wonderful, liberating message we have today, because the purpose of human beings, the foundational purpose is not, Scripture says, and Psalm 8 says, self-expression or self-revelation, but it is a much higher calling. It is the revelation of God in this world. And actually, if you think about Psalm 8 or look at it, this is the central thrust of the entire psalm, that we human beings, as the image bearers of God, have been created in this world with the function of revealing God. And I'm not going to get into the exegesis of the text here. It would put us too far afield. But to do this in two ways. First, with our lips as children and infants, that is to say, as those who are dependent on the Word of God. We reveal God and make Him present by singing His praises as we did this morning. But then in the second sense, we reveal God by carrying out the task of caretaking of His creation. As the second half of the psalm goes, you have put us over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and you can see it's a reflection on Genesis 1. But beloved, this is the high calling that we have received, and this is one of the messages we have for our world today. We are not created, first and foremost, for self-expression, but to express the glory of God. What a calling, and what a grace, actually. May God enable us in this day not only to live who we truly are as human beings, but to convey this to the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen I'll just offer a prayer and then disguise them. Dear Lord God, I pray that the reforming spirit, in the best sense of how it occurred 500 years ago, may continue to occur today, that as we pay attention to your scriptures, and as we pay attention to the gospel of your grace in Jesus that we ourselves would be reformed and that we would be a leavening presence in our culture today. Give us great wisdom as we do this, Lord. Help us not to be heavy-handed or self-righteous or any of those other things that we have no right being, <laughs> but help us to be the neighbor to our, uh, the people who live close to us that is light-bringing in the sense of um, not heavy and light-bringing in the sense of luminous. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, O God, right now and in the week that we go forward. Allow us to um, speak your truth in the ordinariness of our lives in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.